Hey, this is Dan Kogan. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Family in Pleasant Hill, Missouri, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today and let you know you matter to us because you matter to God. Enjoy the message. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would oversee the ministry of the word this morning. I bring a very humble offering to you of loaves and fishes, and I ask that although that's not enough to feed the multitudes, that you would multiply that effort for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I am so grateful to see each and every one of you this morning. I believe that if you are here today, God has a word for you. You are not here by mistake. You're here for a purpose. And so, before we begin to explore the implications of what we've just read, I I think it would be helpful for us to unpack some of the analogies that we read in this psalm. We see builders and watchmen in verse 1, and we see... uh, We see someone who is maybe a workaholic, rising early and going to bed late. We see nervous eaters. (laughs) Anybody relate to any of these analogies? I do some. And so to get a better understanding of the significance of these analogies, it's helpful to think through who wrote this particular psalm and the culture in which it was being written. So what was going on in the society in which this was written. So you'll notice that there seems to be we can throw that scripture back up there. You'll notice that there seems to be a natural break in the flow of this psalm beginning at verse 3. You've got the psalmist talking about building houses and keeping watch over the city and workaholics and nervous eaters, like we said. And, and then there seems to be out of nowhere, the psalmist goes, and aren't kids a blessing? Does that seem unnatural to anyone else? Well, it did to me as I began to study this, but it it reminded me of some of the conversations that I've had with my beautiful wife, Amy. You guys know Amy. Many of you know Amy. And so we've been married for 12 years. And early in our relationship, I began to notice uh, that she had this communication style that I was unfamiliar with. So today, for example, we'd be driving home from church and we'd be having a conversation, maybe something like, man, I'm so excited for the Chiefs game this afternoon. They're going to stomp the Raiders as long as Bob Sutton doesn't have anything to say about it. And, you know, and we'd talk about the game for a little while and then maybe there'd be a lull in the conversation. And then out of nowhere, Amy would go, I wonder if she's coming down with something. What? So 12 years ago, That kind of whiplash would have confused me, but now that I know her a little bit more, I know that she's a lot smarter than I am, first of all, and she logically reasoned somehow from the Raiders and Bob Sutton playing against the Chiefs to Olive maybe getting a bit of a fever. So now that I know her better than I did 12 years ago, I know that she's there for a reason, and so that's kind of what we we want to do here with what 
Solomon, who is the writer of this psalm, is doing is, is we, we get this kind of whiplash. He's talking about building houses and watching the city, and then he goes, and aren't kids a blessing? And, and our, ten, our temptation is to go, where did that come from? But it's there for a reason. And so we're going to look at that just a little bit. First of all, we read in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And it's important for us to note that the word there that's translated as house can also be translated to a city or a kingdom or a family. So unless the Lord builds the family, those who build it are laboring in vain. And so knowing just that little detail can help us to understand this psalm a little bit better. Now, it's highly likely that you guys are a lot more clever than I am, and you made that connection immediately. But for the sake of those who, like me, didn't think that was so natural, I wanted to point that out. The bigger picture here that I want for us to consider, though, is that apart from God's involvement, our best efforts are temporary at best. Okay, I'm going to say that again. Apart from God's involvement, our best efforts are temporary at best. This past Thursday, Amy and I were driving back out this direction from Kansas City, and we were on I-70, and we were driving past the Jackson Curve, Van Brunt area, and we were looking at the houses on the side of the highway, these houses that were built in the early 1900s, the 1930s. They're small, but, but we thought, man, when those were first built, these were probably really beautiful, you know, and they were well-kept, and the homeowners were proud of them, and they kept up with painting, and they, they kept the hedges trimmed and the grass cut. But now when you drive by, there, uh, many, if not most, of those houses have chipping and peeling paint. Uh, a lot of them have boarded-up windows or broken windows. And I just thought, This is such a a poignant picture of what it looks like for us to build apart from God. Those houses served their purpose, but it was temporary, wasn't it? It It's beautiful houses. And, you know, families still live there, so they're still serving a purpose. But they're not cared for the way they were when they were new. And I thought this is such a powerful picture of what it means to build something apart from God. Those homes provided creature comforts, but they couldn't do anything of eternal value. The psalmist goes on in verse 1, second part of verse 1, to say, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, if you've seen any any, kind of ancient not ancient films, but films set in ancient times, you know that they were surrounded often, these cities, with huge walls, you know, that you could walk across. This, the size of this platform may have been the size of some of the walls. And, and so they would set watchmen on the walls, and they served as kind of a, a, a manual, primitive form of a home alarm system. So I'm standing on the wall of the city, and I see uh, an army approaching. I can't necessarily stop the army, but I can at least turn around and say, hey, guys, we're under attack. And the psalmist says that unless the Lord is the one watching the city, the watchman watches in vain. Well, why is that? It's not completely pointless to sound that alarm, is it? No. There was benefit in that. But those watchmen are very limited in what they can do. Because they can't alarm the residents of the city to what they can't see. What if an enemy is burrowing underground? What if the enemy is already in the walls of the city? You think about the way that uh, the, the, the Romans entered the city of Troy through a Trojan horse. 
And so unless the Lord is the one watching over the city, those who are on the walls, they may as well not even, even risen that morning. And so the psalmist says these endeavors in, are in vain. Building a house, watching the city, unless the Lord is truly involved, we are vulnerable to all sorts of threats. So building a house or a city or even a family apart from God is ultimately pointless. Watching over a city apart from God ultimately is pointless. And then the psalmist keeps going and says, it's ultimately pointless for you to wake up early and go to bed late. Because when you finally sit down to eat the food that you've either harvested in ancient times or that you've bought with the money that you've earned, you're too tired to even enjoy it. And God is the one who gives rest. The way the New English translation translate verse 2 is helpful here. It says, It's vain for you to rise early, come home late, and work so hard for your food. Yes, he can provide for those whom he loves, even when they sleep. Am I trusting God like that? Do I really trust that God is still providing for me while I sleep? Several years ago, I worked in marketing as a marketing director. And one of the positions that I held, I answered directly to the president of the company And to put it quite frankly, the president of this company was an abusive boss. I would bring market analyses and and concepts and ideas to him, and I'd say, here's a way that I think that we can increase our profit margin. And he would say, well, we did that 15 years ago, and it didn't work, so we're not going to do that again. And if you don't start coming up with better ideas, you're going to lose your job. Well, I'll tell you, you you might have already picked this up from interaction with me. That's not what motivates me. I'm a words of affirmation guy. Somebody's doing even a remotely good job, I'm going to say, that was incredible, keep it up. And that's the way that I receive love too, is words of affirmation. Well, I wasn't receiving those words of affirmation. Michael is one of the best words of affirmation guys on the planet. So thank you, Michael. I just saw Jamie looking over at him lovingly, and I thought that'd be the appropriate time. But, but this boss, man, I mean, he, he, he caused severe, at least he was used to cause severe anxiety in my life. And I would lay awake in bed at night and just feel literally like I was being crushed. I'd lay my hands on my chest and it felt like my hands weighed 200 pounds each. Just the crushing weight of anxiety. Can anyone relate to that? Well, ultimately, I wasn't trusting that God was providing for me. That's where the wheels of faith meet the road of reality. But if God is for us, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.31, who can be against us? And even if that CEO, that president of the company had fired me, really I had nothing to fear. I believe that because we were at that time and we are still today, that God will provide all of our material needs. Now, I'm not talking about wants. I'm not saying if you want a Lamborghini, God's going to provide that for you if you only have enough faith. That's nonsense. But God will provide your practical needs. But to go even a step further, even if he didn't, the greater need has already been met in Christ. Because we have brothers and sisters around the globe who don't have their material needs met. But listen to me, if you're a part of this congregation and you're out of work, you will not be out on the streets. God has met that need for you in a very practical way through the ministry of our deacons. If you're not sure how you're going to keep the electricity on, contact the church. 
This is one of the, the ways that we serve. Now, we don't do this just for anyone. We try to help where we can, but we, we can't just give away all of the resources that the Lord has entrusted to us indiscriminately. So we, we meet the needs of the congregation first. And where we are able, we try to meet the needs outside of the congregation as well. But if you're a part of this family, if you're a member of this church, you will never be out on the street. Now, I'm going to say something that is not seeker-sensitive. Big surprise. (laughs) It's Dan. If you give in to fear and anxiety, I want to invite you to repent of that today. Am I saying that it is sinful to have anxiety? Well, let's see what God's word says about that. You don't want my opinion. We want to see what God has to say. And Paul, the apostle, commands us in Philippians 4 not to be anxious. He commands it. It is a biblical command not to be anxious. Therefore, if we are anxious, we are in sin. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is the key part. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. We'll throw around the phrase all day long. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Leaving out the part before it, the Lord is at hand. Why are we commanded not to be anxious? Because the Lord is at hand. And verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Isaiah 26.3 gives us this promise. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So the reason I wanted to explore this psalm in particular, Psalm 127 together today, is because we're on the eve, uh, the dawn of a new year. And maybe you have some goals or achievements that you'd like to make in the coming year. Anybody planning on making any New Year's resolutions? I'm, don't, I'm not going to throw you under the bus if you're making a New Year's resolution, but it is interesting to note that something like 60% of 18-year-olds and younger make New Year's resolutions, and it's like 20% of people 60 and older that make New Year's resolutions. Why is that? Because we've learned over time, I make this New Year's resolution every year. I'm going to have abs by Christmas. <laughs> Hasn't happened in 35 years probably not going to happen in 2019. So, so we, we become disillusioned with ourselves and we stop making these promises to ourselves. But you know, some of these, some of these resolutions are good things. We want to lose weight. We want to become more financially stable, learn a new skill, maybe read more. Those are all noble desires, but I want us to consider our, our motive. Why do we make these commitments to ourselves? Because I believe that your why will determine the value of what you do. And I'll say that again. Your why will determine the value of what you do. So I want to look quickly at three of the pitfalls I can fall into when I try to rely on myself for these objectives rather than on Christ. So the first of these pitfalls is pride. The first pitfall is pride. In 2 Chronicles chapters 25 and 26, we read about two kings of Judah. The first is Amaziah and his son Uzziah. 
Now, at the end of chapter 25, we read about Amaziah's death after he turned away from the Lord. And this is a recurring pattern we see in Kings and Chronicles. Uzziah at the time was 16 years old. And naturally, Amaziah dies and they think, well, let's make this 16-year-old kid our king now. Because what could possibly go wrong making a 16-year-old the most powerful person in the nation? Well, we see very quickly what could go wrong in chapter 26. It went to his head. The tricky thing, though, is that he starts out strong. He's coming out of the gate strong because he saw the way his father died. And he wants to remain faithful to the Lord. And so it says in verse 16, rather, let me, let me back up. Verse 4 says that Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He set himself to seek God. And it says as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But then verse 16 tells us when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of God to burn incense. Okay, so what? Uzziah burned incense in the temple. Big deal, right? It was a big deal because God had made it very clear who was to burn incense in the temple. And it wasn't kings. It was the Levitical priests alone who could go in and burn incense to the Lord as a a foreshadowing of Christ. The God-man, the only one who could mediate, who could go between man and God. And so when Uzziah became prideful, he just sauntered into the temple and burned incense like he was a priest, and he wasn't. Uzziah was feeling pretty proud of himself. And it wasn't because of anything he had done but it was because of God's blessing in his life. We read at the end of 2 Chronicles 26 that Uzziah was, as a result of that sin, stricken with leprosy for the rest of his life. He had to live the rest of his life cloistered away from the people over whom he ruled. When we begin to think that the blessings of God in our life are because we're so great, we're making an idol of our success. We're making ourselves little gods. And the truly scary thing about it is that God probably won't give you such a clear sign as he gave Uzziah. That leprosy was a grace of God to bring him to repentance. But I would rather have leprosy and know that I was standing against the Lord in my pride than to continue in my pride and assume that God is okay with it. Why? Because I don't want to build in vain. Say God is blessing my life and I start to get the idea that it's because I am so great. And I just go in that presupposition that I'm great and God's blessing me because I'm great, not because he's kind, but because I deserve it. And I build my family and I rest on my laurels and I model this kind of pride for my wife and for my kids and for my church community. I would rather have leprosy and know that I was standing against God in my pride. 
The second pitfall that I want to explore is a false sense of security. When we depend upon ourselves rather than upon God, we can fall into a false sense of security. Look with me at this parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, starting in verse 16, says this, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? He had so much, he had no place to put it. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And here's what the point of this parable is. It's awfully easy for us, especially, I would say, in our wealthy Western culture. The poorest among us are wealthy in the world. It's easy for us to stop explicitly depending on God for our needs. We go to work and the paycheck auto deposits and we buy groceries and gas and entertainment. And most of the time, we do that without giving it a thought. Yeah, maybe toward the end of our pay period, we might start to slow down our spending a little bit. We might think, well, I better not go out to eat now because I'm getting a little tight in the bank account. But most of the time, we do it without giving it much of a thought. But like I said earlier, we have brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe who are fully aware that they depend upon God for every meal. They're not sure where their next meal is going to come from. And they have to trust that God will provide for them as long as he has them on this plane of existence. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is essentially don't forget who your source truly is. You store up your wealth, you amass your riches, and assume it will always be there when you need it. But apart from God's sovereign provision and protection, we have nothing. I read recently about a wealthy man who was diagnosed with a terminal condition. And he was told that this condition was untreatable. There was no cure. There was no treatment. He was just going to die. Well, this wealthy man went and cashed out his accounts. And he went to the hospital with cases full of money. And he walked up to the head doctor confidently and said, cure me. And the doctor said, there's, we've told you there's no cure for this condition. And it took some convincing, but he finally, the, the truth of this sunk in. And the man began to weep and go throughout the halls of the hospital, just throwing his money. And he said, what's the point of having the money then? What we amass to ourselves can be taken from us in an instant. Because we're not sovereign. God is alone. And the third and most significant pitfall of self-reliance that I want to talk about is that of self-righteousness. I've been called self-righteous before. Has anyone else been called self-righteous? Usually in our cultural context, when we call someone self-righteous, we mean they're, they're being prideful. They're being smug. But that's not the way that I'm using this term. Think about the the term righteousness, right standing with God. 
So the way we're using this term is uh, in reference to our standing with God and thinking that we can justify ourselves or make ourselves right before, the, before God. So the psalm we're considering today essentially tells us that unless God is the primary force at work in all our achievements, then we may as well hang it up and go home. If this is true in regards to building a family or watching a city, how much more so does this apply to our being made right with God, our eternal security? But what does it look like in practice when we try to earn righteousness, when we try to deserve right standing with God? Well, Paul says in Galatians 2.21 that if, uh, if righteousness were through your actions through your abiding by God's law, then Christ died for no purpose. Well, we know that's not true. Christ didn't die purposelessly. (laughs) I try to say that three times fast. We know that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus says in John 6 that all that the Father gives to him will come to him, and he will raise them up at the last day. Jesus died for a purpose. And Galatians 2.21 tells us if righteousness were attained by something we could do, then Jesus didn't need to die. This is clearly a rhetorical point on Paul's part. If we can't save ourselves, listen, if we can't make ourselves right with God to begin with, we can't even keep ourselves right with God. But thank God that the one who saves us is also able to keep us perfectly. So as I alluded to earlier, Solomon was the writer of the psalm that we're looking at today. He also wrote the amazingly encouraging book of Ecclesiastes. I'm kidding. Ecclesiastes is depressing. Solomon wrote the incredibly depressing book of Ecclesiastes. And he says this in Ecclesiastes 2.11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was pointless. It was a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So why make an effort? If Solomon acknowledged how pointless our efforts and achievements are, then why do anything? Why not just sit back and enjoy life? Why not just eat, drink, and be merry like the rich man in Luke 12? Well, for one main reason. God's glory. We are created to bring glory to God. But we get one additional secondary reason thrown in because God is kind for our good. It's good to build homes and families, right? It's good to endeavor to protect our loved ones, but it's only eternally good insofar as God is involved. So the concern for us at this point is if God is truly sovereign, as I say he is, then won't he accomplish what he wants apart from human involvement? Won't this understanding lead us to spiritual apathy or laziness? No. I want you to see this. A proper biblical understanding of the sovereignty of God in our salvation, rather than leading us to spiritual laziness, should cause us to be passionate about living lives that glorify him. Look with me at Jude, verses 24 and 25. I'll read this to you. It says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 
To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Yeah. So Jude tells us we can't even keep ourselves from stumbling. That's the work of Christ in us. But we are called to be actively involved in that process. Listen with me to Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. This is familiar to many of you. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We've been, as I alluded to earlier, walking with our students in 7th through 12th grade through the New City Catechism, and each week we ask and try to answer from Scripture a question about God and our relation to Him. The first question of the year, we're going to be hitting this in just a couple weeks, the very first question is, what is our only hope in life and death that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ? That's our only hope? Yeah. It's strange, isn't it, that our only hope is that we are not our own. Some of you will recognize the name John MacArthur. He's a respected preacher of our day. And MacArthur said this, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Just think about Adam. He didn't have a sinful tendency the way we do. See, we inherited a sinful tendency. We are always more prone to rebel than we are to obey. That's what we've inherited. But Adam didn't have a tendency one way or the other. He was created morally neutral. And if he still managed to rebel against God's one prohibited action, eating of that one tree that he was commanded not to eat of, it serves to show our total and complete need for Jesus. An often quoted verse of scripture Uh, is work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's almost, I've noticed, always quoted without the next part. This is what Philippians 2, 12, and 13 says. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, active, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you want to please God? God gets the credit for that. We don't get to boast of that. We don't get to say, look at how much better I am than my neighbor because I desire to please God. Because it says, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God gets the glory for our good desires. And we rejoice in that. Because we can only work out what God has worked in us. So we're called to be active participants in this process of becoming more and more holy. The pronouncement that we have been made right with God is something that God alone does. He doesn't react to us. He doesn't say, look at how good that person repented. As a result of what that person has done, I'm going to make them right with me. No. We're dead. Paul says in Ephesians You were dead in your trespasses and the sins which you once walked. What can a dead man do? Nothing. But you've been made alive together with Christ. 
If you desire to honor Christ, it's because God has raised you up from the dead, and he alone gets the glory for that. That's our justification. But the next part is sanctification. That means being made more and more holy. And that's the part that we get to hold hands with the Holy Spirit and say, bring me along for this one. But God still gets the glory and the credit for it because we couldn't do it apart from him. Look back with me again at Psalm 127, this time at verses 3 through 5. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Don't gloss over that word, heritage. I'm proud of my kids. As imperfect as they are. You guys hear Olive running around here sometimes. Girl can scream. (laughs) But in spite of those tantrums from time to time, I'm so proud of her. I'm proud that I get to be her daddy. But I wouldn't have her if it weren't for God. I don't get to take the credit for her being alive. She's a heritage from the Lord. My six-month-old son, Knox, is a heritage from the Lord. An inheritance is something that is given to you by nature of your relationship as a son or daughter. I didn't earn my inheritance. It was a gift. And, And that's true even more especially of our spiritual inheritance. And Paul says in Romans eight 17, we've been made co-heirs with Christ. If that even for a moment breeds a sense of pride in your heart, step back and examine why. If you look at those who are not in Christ and you go, well, I'm better than them because I'm a Christian. We're not better than them. We might be better off. We're certainly not better because At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. So rather than saying, I need to get in better shape this year, or I need to watch less TV, or I need to increase my self-confidence, or upgrade my iPhone, because the new one comes out every week, or upgrade my car, or get a bigger TV, or I need to fill in the blank, let's collectively resolve together today and every day to say, what I need is more of Jesus. I'm not discouraging you from making New Year's resolutions. Make the resolutions. But explore your motivation. Explore your why. Why do I want to get healthier? Why do I want to read more? Is it because I want people to think more highly of me than they currently do? We're building in vain. Do I want the new iPhone because I think it will really make me happy? Might for a while, but not for the long haul. Building in vain, watching the city in vain. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, be sure to subscribe to our show so the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready whenever you are. And secondly, if Grace Family has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description and make a donation now. And we'll see you next time on the Grace Family Podcast.